Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. But today we're going to continue uh, our Christmas series called Gospel Christmas, in which we're working through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Last week we looked at the book of Matthew. Today we're going to look at Mark kind of, sort of, but what's going to be neat is we're going to actually read a little portion from all four Gospels today. So Christmas is a busy time of year, wouldn't you say? Busy, busy, busy. We're going, going, going. Uh, We have presents to buy. We have presents to wrap. We have things to decorate. We have food to cook. Uh, We have parties that we go to, events that we go to, maybe events that you're going to host. Maybe you're going to travel in this holiday season. There is a lot of Christmas prepping involved this time of year, and that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at really all four Gospels and look at this idea of Christmas prepping, but not prepping for Christmas, but instead prepping for the one who came on the first Christmas. So we're going to look at today. And we're going to do that by looking at the life and ministry of Jesus's older cousin, John. So he's known as John the Baptist. He's not the guy that wrote the book of John. It's a different John. We're going to look at how he was prepped and how he prepped others for who would come at Christmas. So it's not really super Christmassy, but it, it does fit with this idea as we look at the Gospels this Christmas season. So we're going to examine the story of John, the life of John, the ministry of John, and then see how we too can be prepared not just for Christmas, but for Christ. And so let's start here. So there's, there's going to be three stages that we, of preparation that we see here. And the first one involves John's uh, father. And he was not prepared. We're going to see that. He's not prepared for what happens to him that we're going to read here first in Luke chapter 1. Now we'll be in Luke 1 again next week. We're going to talk about Mary and a similar story next week. Um, but we're going to start here in Luke chapter 1 and see how Zechariah, John's dad, was not prepared for this moment. Let's look at it together here. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 11. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. We'll see that later on. He will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. Great way to phrase that. Okay. Nice move there. So not only are they both way beyond childbearing years, but they don't have any children now because she's been barren. She's been unable to conceive. 
So here's what happens. Then the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. You ever had somebody show up unannounced to a Christmas event or a family event? Maybe you didn't even invite them on purpose but they knew you were having a party, so they show up at your door. This is sort of what happens here with Zechariah. He's in the temple. He's a priest, so he's, been, he's serving what it looks like here for about a week at a time. They would rotate the priest that would serve and live in the temple for that week. So it's his kind of round to do this. So he's there in the temple, in God's presence, you know, and then all of a sudden this angel appears out of nowhere, and he's not prepared. He's not prepared for the angel to appear, which I can't blame him for that, right? Um, And he's not prepared for what the angel tells him either, as we see. But what's interesting, though, is there is a theme here of this sort of event happening even throughout the Old Testament. Zechariah would have been very familiar with what's happened, even though it's now happening to him. It's one thing to read about something happening or hearing that this happened to someone, and then when it's happening to you, that's a totally different thing, isn't it? That's kind of where he is, because this has happened, this same thing has happened before. In Genesis 18, there's Abraham, and he also, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, his wife, he and his wife Sarah, she's not able to conceive, and they're both getting old. They're above childbearing years. But then one day, three men from out of nowhere come and visit them, and they talk with Abraham, they're having a meal together, and all of a sudden, one of the men says, hey, isn't your wife Sarah? Yeah. And you guys don't have any kids? Yeah. Well, guess what? I'm going to come back in about a year and she's going to have a son. And then all of a sudden they just kind of keep talking for a while and then the men just go on their way. And that's sort of the end of that account. Now, later on, it would be very obvious that these were either, either three angels in sort of some sort of human form. It wasn't obvious to Abraham anyway that these were angels. Or it's also what we might call a theophany. Where in the Old Testament, pre-Christ, either a form of pre-incarnate Christ or in a form of God himself in some way would visit certain people at certain times and do this sort of thing. So in some way, Abraham has had a very similar visitation with a very similar message in his very similar situation. Fast forward several hundred years to Judges chapter 13. There's a man named Manoah. And his wife gets a visit from a strange guy as well. And he has a very similar message for their very similar situation. She has been unable to bear children. And so this person who she doesn't quite know who it is, but she, she says later he kind of looked like what an angel might look like. He appears to her and says, even though you've been unable to bear children, you're going to have a son. So as soon as she hears it, she says, wait right there. She runs to find her husband Manoah and says, you're not going to believe this. This weird dude, this weird looking dude, maybe like an angel kind of guy, said that I'm going to have a son. And so then the guy's just gone, right? So then Manoah prays to God for this person or being or whatever it was to come back and give them more instruction, more information. And God answers their prayer, and this angel comes back to them and fills in a few more gaps uh, that they might have some questions about and says the same thing. He gives some instructions, some specific info, and then they offer a sacrifice to God to celebrate what they know is going to be a miraculous event. So after these three men appear to Abraham about a year, less than a year later, their son Isaac is born. And then Uh, About a year after this man visits Manoah and his wife, their son, Samson, is born. 
Zechariah has a very similar situation happen to him, and he's, he's not prepared, obviously. But there are parallels, not only to the specific situation, but the, even the way these are announced in each of them. I kind of noticed this week a, a parallel from each story I want to point out just, just very quickly here. So obviously it's the same situation, an angel visits them, these, these barren women and these older people that are above childbearing years. So that's obviously a parallel. But with the Samson announcement, remember the angel comes back to give specific information. That's just like what happened with Samson's parents. The, the angel comes back, then, so Zechariah then gets some specific information from this angel. You're going to name him John, and he lists all these things he's going to do, turn the hearts of the fathers back to their sons, and all the people are going to be waiting and ready for him to prepare the way for, uh, for the Lord, that sort of thing. So there's that parallel with that story. But then Zechariah's reaction, there's a parallel to the Abraham-Sarah story. Because Zechariah's like, mm, angel, I don't know about that. You know, he's, I, got, I got some issues. I got some questions. I don't. And similarly, when, and when Sarah is not even in the conversation with Abraham and these three men, she's kind of back, you know, doing something else. But when she overhears this, what does she do? She laughs. And the, one of the men, angels, maybe God himself, said, hmm, hey, Sarah, what's so funny back there? You know, he, he overhears her laughing, too. And so it's similar that Zechariah has a similar sort of this, mm, you know, that, that'd be nice, but I don't know about that sort of response. And we'll see what's interesting next week. Mary has some questions, too, and the angel responds differently to her. I can't explain why. I've still got to figure that out. Maybe by next Sunday we'll have that answered for you. I don't know. But what's funny is Zechariah then is struck where he cannot speak because of his unbelief. The angel says, because you didn't believe, you got to shut up now. Okay. And we're not talking about for like the day or the weekend until this baby's born. They've just discovered she's going to be pregnant soon and have a baby. And until he's eight days old after he's born in the temple to be circumcised, at that moment when they say his name is John, then he can suddenly speak. So we're talking eight, nine, ten months, maybe a year. This guy can't speak at all. Now some of the wives in here are saying, thank you, Jesus, you know, like, may it be so in my life, you know, maybe you're like that, I'm sure my wife is like that too, um, but that was the reaction for Zechariah in this very situation, he was not prepared for what God was doing and what God was going to do, so let me ask you this question, we asked a similar question last week, but it bears repeating in this way this morning, are you prepared for what God may want to do in your life? Are you prepared for what God may want to do through your life? Again, last week we asked a very similar question, but it's always a good question to ask because God sometimes has a way of not working on our timing. Right, John and Dixie? <laughs> we talked about that a little bit this week. God has a way of sometimes showing up and we're not expecting him, throwing us those curveballs, right? He does that. And so we may not always be prepared, but here's what I think is an important key for, for your life. You may not always be prepared for what God is going to do, but my prayer is that you would be open to all that he may do. We can't always, we, we never can really see what God is actually going to do or when he's going to do it, but if our lives are just a posture of openness and willingness for whatever he might do, then I think we can react a lot quicker to what he's trying to do. 
And what's interesting here, too, is when Zechariah is unable to speak, I think that's maybe a good principle for us as well. Because sometimes we can talk our way or reason our way out of what God might be trying to do. We don't maybe think we're being resistant, but we're, well, that's, that's not possible. Like, that doesn't make any sense. God would never do that. He would never do this in this way. Or my situation's unique because it's too difficult. Sometimes we just talk our way, think our way, reason our way out of what he might be in the works of trying to do, and maybe even blocking some of what he might want to do. So I think we, we would do well to sort of, on our own, sometimes just be like, zip it, and just be, okay, God, here I am. I'm open, I'm available to whatever you want to do. Even if you can't be prepared for all that God wants to do, may we at least be open and expectant that he is doing something. So, his, so John the Baptist's dad was not prepared. So now we're going to get in, into John and then the book of Mark specifically here for just a minute. What I want to do quickly is read a snapshot uh, from Mark chapter 1. This is how Mark begins his gospel, is with John. A snapshot of John's life and ministry and just see how John's whole goal was preparing the way of the Lord. We'll look at what that looks like here. So Mark chapter 1, start at verse number 1. Mark begins his gospel this way. This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. Now he's quoting Isaiah 40. Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. This messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. All of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. John announced, Someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So from this snapshot of John from the book of Mark, we see that John the Baptist had a singular focus. It was all about preparing. Now the way it's worded here and in Isaiah, it's preparing the way of the Lord. So in a way, John is sort of the appetizer to your Christmas meal. Right? He comes out first. He's the opening act to the real reason you bought the tickets to see Taylor Swift. All right? Now, I know that if you have any money left in your bank account, you did not buy tickets to go see Taylor Swift, all right? But that's what John is. He's the opening act. He comes out before. He prepares the way of the Lord. He's preparing the way of the Lord, but really what he's doing is he's preparing the people for the Lord. He's preparing the people for Jesus who would come after him. Again, think about this for a second. John is the first prophet in Israel in 400 years. So you've got all these prophets, you know, even says in, in Luke about he's like the prophet like Elijah, which he is, we'll, we'll, we've already seen that, we'll see it again in a minute. So you have all these strings of prophets for a long time, prophet, 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 they just one after another, and then nothing for 400 years. 
Then all of a sudden, you got this crazy dude wearing camel skin in the desert, you know, locust, you know, like, like weird guy, crazy eyes, weird hair, like out there, smelly, stinky, nasty guy, screaming at people, and they're like, wait a second, this is kind of weird. We're not used to this. Now, maybe my great, 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 keep going, grandparents were used to this hundreds of years, but this is new to me. So that, and that's really the point of John. He comes out of nowhere like a bolt of lightning to prepare the people, hey, something's coming. Someone is coming. I'm here to kind of get you stirred up, get you sort of what, looking ready, who, what's next, who's going to be better than this guy, who's going to be greater than John, and that was the whole point. And he started with a bang. So to illustrate that, let's look at Matthew 3 for just a second, and we're going to look at sort of what maybe his sermons might look like, Okay. Here, here's, if you were to show up to John, if, he, if he's Pastor John, okay, here's what his sermons are going to look like. Matthew 3, starting at verse number 7. When he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptized, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe. For we're descendants of Abraham, that means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. So John's pretty intense, we'll just say, all right? Like, he's a lot, okay? So, um... But this is how he is. Now, we hear Jesus use similar language at times, but from what we can tell of John, he's always cranked to 11. Like, he just never stops. He never slows down. He never takes a break. He never gives anyone a break. He's just always preaching this to really jolt the people, to prepare them for someone who would come after him. And this is not an easy task that John had for a lot of reasons that we'll, we'll discuss really now and then later, later on as well. From what we know of John, which is not much, but from what we see of his life, his ministry, his message, his methods, I think there's two key qualities that he possessed that made him able to be the preparing agent that God needed him to be. So let's look at those for just a second. The, and they may seem obvious, but I think they're important. I think the first key quality that John possessed was simply faith. You cannot be the way that John was and not really believe it. Otherwise, you are literally a crazy person. Okay, that's all you are. So John, had re he really believed what he said. He really believed what he lived. And the, the cool part about that is just like us, he was a human. So there are going to be, no doubt, there are going to be times and moments of doubt. Probably just like his dad. Like, maybe he's come off a really, you know, one of these type of sermons, and he's baptized tons of people, and maybe he's kind of, you know, trying to take a moment, and he's probably thinking, okay, what is going on here? <laughs> like, when he kind of calms down, he's think, probably thinking, is this, like, really what I'm supposed to be doing? Like, is this really the whole point of my life? So he certainly, like any of us, would wrestle with moments of doubt or fear or uncertainty. God, are you sure about this? I mean, I'm making some powerful enemies talking like this, and I'm making a lot of people really upset, and they don't know what to do with this, and I'm a lot, I know I'm a lot, okay? So, of course, he had these moments, but his faith propelled him forward. His certain belief in, in God, first of all, was strong enough to help him to just continue on. 
His faith in God's plan for him was strong enough to push him past any doubt, questions, fears, uncertainty that he might have been internally wrestling with. His faith was enough for him. And then coupled with that, the second quality here from John, I believe, is simply commitment. He stuck with it. He spoke out, again, against powerful people. He made powerful enemies. He's a dude living in the desert, living on locusts and wild honey, yet he stuck with it. He remained faithful. He was committed to what God had called him to do. And that's despite the doubters that he faced, which were many. It's despite the haters that are going to hate, 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 just like Taylor would tell us later on, right? He stuck with it despite opposition, despite sacrifice. Like maybe he had other plans as a kid. Maybe he had other goals, other ambitions, but then eventually he got with God's program and said, this is it. He stuck with it. Despite the danger that he eventually would be arrested and then through kind of a strange circumstance would be beheaded simply by speaking out against the powerful elite people in his day. He was committed and his faith propelled him. Those two qualities were so important, I think, with John. And I believe that we need the same qualities in our lives because I believe we have a very similar mission to what John had. In Matthew 28, the the final words of Jesus are what we call the Great Commission, right? Go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? So that's kind of, that's what John did. We're preparing people for Jesus. Now, it's going to look different than John, okay? You might have a better wardrobe selection than John had, and you may have a better diet than what John had, but your goal, your mission, if you're a follower of Jesus, is the same mission as John, to prepare people to meet Jesus. And so we have to have these same qualities. If you're going to fulfill that, if you're going to live your life for that purpose of preparing others for Jesus, it's going to require genuine faith. Because at times, you're going to doubt. At times, you're going to have some questions about this whole thing. At times, you're not going to maybe see any results for a long period of time. It's going to be slow going. It's going to be very hard at, at some point. So we have to have faith and commitment to the cause. Because it won't always, you won't always feel like it. Like somebody's just going to wake up and I don't really feel like doing a whole lot with Jesus today or for Jesus today. But it takes commitment. Faith's just simply a day-by-day commitment. I'm going to do this. You're going to get some weird looks from people sometimes, maybe like John did, okay? Uh, You're going to get some pushback from certain people. You're going to face ridicule uh, like John did. You're going to face some opposition maybe in very strong ways, maybe in very personal ways. So it requires faith and commitment for us to fulfill the Great Commission, which is the same thing that John really did here. So may we be people like John who are all about preparing others for Jesus. Then we get to the third third phase here. Those qualities, faith and commitment on John's part, made it possible for him to fulfill his mission, right? But ultimately, John was able to prepare others because he was himself prepared. He was prepared. Even from the very beginning, remember at the very top we talked about he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. So if you look at Luke, later on in Luke chapter 1, we're going to see this, how this kind of looks in a kind of an interesting, fun way here. Go to Luke chapter 1 down to verse 39, uh, and we're going to see how, how this looked here. So Luke 1, 39. 
A few days later, Mary, so this is Jesus' mother, Mary and Elizabeth are cousins. So Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea, to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child, John, leaped within her. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you believe what the Lord would do, that the Lord would do what he said. So the very first time, little baby John is around little baby Jesus. John's doing backflips. So I'm sure Elizabeth's like, get him out of here, you know, like, can we speed this thing up, you know? So it's just like, whoa. So it's just, it's just kind of a fun thing here how even before he was born, John was ready to prepare the way for his cousin Jesus. From before the beginning, right, he's ready to roll. He's doing backflips in the womb. So John could not wait for this. But then we get into, like, the reality of what this looks like for John. So John's ministry comes before Jesus. He's first. He's out the gate preaching, baptizing. He's gaining popularity. He's gaining his own disciples. He's kind of starting his own sort of movement and ministry here. Things are going great. And then little cousin Jesus comes along, and guess what? He's starting to gain popularity. And he's starting to gain followers and disciples. And he's starting to baptize people. And so one day, John's disciples come to him, and they don't like this. They don't like this new guy in town. I don't care if he's your blood relative or not. I don't, this is not cool. He's taking some of your followers over to his side. Like, what's the deal? They are very upset with Jesus here. But John's response to his followers in John chapter 3 shows us that he was prepared to prepare others for Jesus. Let's look at this one, one scripture passage, then we'll work through it for just a minute, a few minutes here. John 3, 27 through 36. So again, his disciples come to him, they are upset about Jesus. But here is John's response to them. John replied, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah, I am only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, And the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, John says, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. He has come from above and is greater than anyone else. We are of the earth, and we speak of earthly things, but he has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. He testifies about what he has seen and heard, but how few believe what he tells them. Anyone who accepts his testimony can affirm that God is true, for he is sent by God. He speaks God's words, for God gives him the Spirit without limit. The Father loves his Son and has put everything into his hands, and anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. So let's work through for a couple minutes here this response by John that proves he was in his heart, deep down, prepared for the work that God had called him to do. Even though on the outside it seemed like it cost him popularity, followers, clout, 
but he was prepared. Let's look at, he makes five claims here I want to look at just briefly here. Five claims that John makes about Jesus in this passage. In verse 31, he says, Jesus is greater. So John first acknowledges that there's something special about my cousin. There's something unique. There's something different about him. Okay, but let's look at verse 30 and 31 and compare them just for a second. So in verse 31, he says, Jesus is greater. But up in verse 30, he says, he must become greater and I must become less. So when you put those two together, verse 31 is a reality. Jesus is greater, period, end of sentence. But in verse 30, that's a decision that John makes. He must become greater and I must become less. Verse 31 is a reality. Verse 30 is a decision. John acknowledged Jesus's greatness. He understood it, and then he acknowledged it as well. It proves he was prepared for preparing the way for Jesus. In verse 34, the second uh, claim that John makes is he was sent from God. Now, what's funny is in John's gospel, John chapter 1, we'll read that on Christmas Eve, the writer of John, the John the Apostle, talks about John the Baptist in John chapter 1. Are you confused yet? Great. So the disciple of Jesus, John, writes about his cousin, um, John was sent from God. So it's, it's a very similar claim that they, you could say, well, you're both kind of on that same level, but John, even though he was sent from God, is still acknowledging the authority of Jesus. Even over someone like me, you as my followers, my disciples, you have to understand, no, no, no. I, you might think I'm great. He is greater. He's acknowledging the greatness and the authority that he was sent from God. The third claim he makes, it's back in verse 28. This is the big one. He says, Jesus is the Messiah. He says, I've told you plainly, I'm not the Messiah. I'm preparing the way for him. And he knew and they knew he's preparing the way for Jesus. So he's equating Jesus is the Messiah. This is a huge claim. This is what the people have been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years. And John is the first one out the gate to say, yeah, this, that's him. He is him. That's, that's what the kids are saying now. He is him. I don't know if that's, so John was the first one to even be a cool kid, right? So John's awesome. But you think about, could this be real? Could this be true? Does John even know what he's saying here? Does he have any, but he, he knew. I mean, he, he's not mincing words. He says, I'm not the Messiah. I'm preparing the way for him. They know who he's talking about. So John is convinced from the start that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the redeemer, the savior of his people. And then down in verse 35 and 36, he makes an even greater claim, I think, than that, that Jesus is God's son. In addition to being the Messiah, John claims that Jesus is God's son. Now, I mention this almost every Christmas or every so often, but the Messiah was never really thought of or really probably intended to be God's son. Those are two separate claims that Jesus both fulfills both of them. The Messiah was always thought of just this, you know, this person who's anointed, who's blessed by God to kind of free us from the Roman occupation, like he's our, he's our savior, right? But he's also God's son. These are two separate claims. Sometimes we combine them, but they're, they're different. They're, they are unique. But John sees both of them. He sees that he's the Messiah and God's son. And I'm certain that, you know, when they do family get-togethers, John had heard Mary's story that we'll talk about next week when the angel appears to her and tells her who Jesus really is from the very beginning. That the Holy Spirit is going to 
cause you to have this son. I'm sure he had heard that she was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and then he has time to think about it, and then when he, then something just happens in his heart, in his spirit, that he is convinced beyond belief. So he didn't even need to see a resurrected Jesus to believe that he was God's son. Or the final claim, verse 31, that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is God. So in verse 31, he says, he came from heaven. That is different in my view. That's distinct from John saying he was sent by God, right? So he's sent from heaven. He says he has spoken about what he's seen and heard in heaven. So Jesus is not an angel, right? That John would know that. That people would know that. So it leaves only one option. If he's sent from heaven, well, he's not an angel. There's only really one other option that he can then be. If that claim is true, he must be God in human form. He must be divine. So John saw this. That's the deep level of faith that John had. He didn't have to see the crucifixion, resurrection. He didn't live to see that. He knew even at the very, very, very beginning of the ministry of Jesus, probably even before his public ministry starts, that that's who this guy is. He's not just a a prophet like me. He's not just like a second-tier prophet above me. He is the Messiah. He is God's son. He is God himself in human form. That's the kind of faith and belief that John had, and he was, so he was prepared. So if he, he knew if, if I'm preparing the way for God to show up on this planet, then I need to really get out of the way and let him do his thing. That's why John could do that, because he was prepared. So John and Jesus, our family, you know, they're, they're just a few months apart. They probably grew up together. But what I love here about this response as we close is that there was no jealousy on John's part. There's no rivalry. Now his followers, they, right, they, that's how they see it, but John doesn't have that attitude at all. John may have come first, but he knew that Jesus was ultimately first. John knew, this is the point. My point is to point people to him. My point is to step back and say, yep, this is the guy, not me. Follow him, not me. That's his whole point, and that's our point. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's your point. That's your singular focus is to point people toward Jesus. Now, it's not, it's not that people, people are going to see, even Jesus says, people are going to see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. But again, it's all pointing back to him. And so as we're preparing stuff for Christmas, may we do what we sang this morning in joy to the world. May our hearts prepare him room. If we can open ourselves up again to what God may want to do, be willing to be used by him in ways that we could never imagine, and just be open to pointing people to him, make everything we do about him, that's preparing our heart room. So then we can be prepared to prepare others to not just get ready for Christmas, but to prepare him room, prepare room for the one who came at Christmas. So as we center ourselves and focus ourselves this Christmas season on Jesus, we will see that happen like never before. And that will change everything this Christmas. Let's pray. God, this Christmas, there is so much to do. There is so much to be busy about. There is so much to prepare. But my prayer for us here today is that we would prepare ourselves for Jesus. And that's those that don't have a relationship with him, that they would make room in their hearts to receive him as the ultimate gift this Christmas. It's my prayer for those of us that have followed Jesus for a long time, that we would continue to prepare our hearts to give him more room and more room, to make everything all about him. We know that you have a mission for us, just like John, to reach people. And maybe like his dad, we're not prepared for it, but help us to be open to what your spirit might want to do. 
and as we work in preparing others and doing what you've called us to do, and it's not anything maybe always special or huge, it's just a little thing here at work, a little thing with our neighbor where they just notice there's something different. We're pointing people to Jesus. As we are prepared in our hearts to receive him, and as we live that out, we then prepare others to receive the greatest gift of all this Christmas. So I pray for your grace upon us. I pray for your peace upon us. I pray for your joy upon us as we leave this place today, that we would just have, have the heart of John as we go out into our daily life this week. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.